Hi, everyone. You are now listening to BCC Sermons. Thanks for tuning in. So spend time with God, fellowship with the Father, sit at the feet of Jesus, enjoy His presence, intercede for the lost. All of these things that we may have heard in church, all these ideas and concepts that we say, do we really even know what those things mean? Or do we know if we're actually doing those things right? I think a lot of us go, yeah, I want to spend time with God, but uh, like, where do I begin? Where do I start? And so I think there's these hurdles that are created that the enemy uses to regularly try to intimidate us from growing in our relationship with God. Because when people say spend time with God, it can be such an ambiguous statement that we're looking to other people and we're going, well, I think maybe everyone else is doing it and I'm getting it wrong. And so if we don't feel like we're doing something or doing it right, we are probably going to be intimidated to even try. And so we leave these abstract ideas of spending time with God over into this category of things we feel guilty about because we're not sure if we're doing them right or not. And I want us to fix that today because I want us to talk about what spending time with God can look like by spending time in his word and with prayer. So let's do that today. Amen, church? Over in John 15, Jesus talks about this idea of abiding. And all the way from 15, verse 1, all the way through verse 17, he gives this idea of the fact that he says, I'm in the Father and, and you are a part of me. And so you're a part of this idea of this vine that's attached to this branch that has the same life flowing through it and there's fruitfulness jesus describes in john 15 fruitfulness of love fruitfulness of good works fruitfulness of love towards the father it's a result of abiding it's the same idea that's in galatians chapter 5 that talks about the fruits of the spirit the fruit of the spirit of god is the result of the spirit of god living on the inside of you right and so it's this evidence that God actually is in us making all things new and working in us what brings him glory. And so this evidence helps us to be fruitful in our walk. And this comes through our relationship with God because fruitfulness is the goal for every Jesus follower. Fruitfulness is the goal. We must understand based on what Jesus said in John 15 that we are called to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is the goal for you and for me if we are followers of Jesus. That means the fruit of a life that shows evidence that Christ is actually in us. That this is more than just where we park our cars for an hour or an hour and a half once a week. That this is more than just owning a Bible and setting it out on the coffee table at home. That this is more than just us putting a Honk If You Love Jesus bumper sticker on the back of your car, right? It's more than that. There's actually evidence that I know him. Remember last week when we talked about the book of Acts where John and Peter were standing before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. And remember how they said, these guys are obviously uneducated. They're not speaking with like an eloquent tongue. They're not using words of educated people. They're not speaking well. So we can tell these guys aren't using this educated language to try to convince us. But there was one thing they couldn't deny. Do you remember what that was? That they had been with Jesus. 
They said, these are plain, simple, uneducated men, but we can tell by the way that they're talking. It's obvious they've been with Jesus because Jesus modeled for them something. He modeled the heart of God. And fruit-filled living is the result of learning and experiencing the heart of God. This was the most effective mentoring that Jesus did in his time here on the earth with his disciples was helping them to learn the heart of God by them experiencing it and by him teaching them the very heart of God. You remember there were several instances in scripture where Jesus would help to reset their idea of scriptures they had come to think meant something or something that they had thought this certain idea around. And Jesus would say it to them like this. He would say, you've heard it said this way, but I say to you. So Jesus wasn't changing the meaning of the scripture. That's not, that would be very contradictory to who he was. Jesus wasn't changing the meaning. He was trying to show them what it actually means and what the heart of God is behind that scripture. And so he would say, you've heard it this one way and you've heard it taught and you've understood it this way. But I say to you, this is actually the heart behind what that law or that scripture actually means. And then Jesus did something else. He modeled to them by the way that he lived his life, the way that he treated other people. Amen. The way that he interacted, the types of people he interacted with. Pay attention when you read through the Gospels and the life of Jesus and you see Jesus stop on his normal journey, his normal way. Or maybe he has a destination, he has a goal, he's going to go somewhere and all of a sudden someone comes up to him and distracts him from going to his destination where he's going. How does Jesus act? How does he act when he's inconvenienced from going from one place to the next? We see over and over again, Jesus made time. Jesus stopped. Jesus listened. Jesus marveled and interceded and interacted and loved people, even those that the religious leaders didn't want anything else to do with. So over and over again, we see this idea of Jesus modeling the heart of God. And this is the idea when we go to Scripture, when we go to Scripture, that we're going to Scripture with the goal of learning and understanding the heart of God. This must be the goal of the Christian in their Bible study. Listen, this must be the goal of all Christian learning. The goal of all Christ-centered learning, all Christian learning, must be to better know and understand the heart of God, not to win Bible trivia. It's great if you win Bible trivia, if you get a trophy, but I would rather you understand what it means than just get an Awana badge just because you wanted it, right? I want you to understand what it means, not just go, oh, I've got that memorized and I know that. And so many people spend their lives thinking that I'm more spiritual because of what I know. Actually, Jesus said that a tree is known by what? It's fruits. This idea of fruitfulness, this idea of abiding, this idea of him being in us and us being in him. This idea of that same life flowing from God to us because of Jesus Christ and we're producing fruit naturally. So therefore, the fruit is the evidence, not my knowledge, because I can know a whole lot of things and it not affect my heart. I can have a lot stored up here and not allow it to penetrate the hardness of my own heart. We see this over and over again throughout the lives of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. These guys were puffed up with pride and knowledge. And man, these guys were no joke. They, they were definitely winning Bible trivia. They definitely had their facts and figures memorized. They were smart, very smart, very intelligent people. But Jesus was trying to show them, you haven't allowed these words to penetrate your heart. 
You've become puffed up with pride because you're just interested in what you know and it hasn't transformed you or changed you or reset your priority so there's no fruit. You've just got all of this knowledge. And there's so many people who pursue knowledge but they're not pursuing the heart of God in their pursuit of knowledge. Listen, understanding and learning more about God and gaining more knowledge about the scripture is awesome if your goal is to understand God's heart more. Make that your goal. When you go to a class, when you buy a new book, when you read a commentary, when you watch a YouTube video, or when you read something, or you do a daily devotional, whatever the case may be, set your heart before you even begin by acknowledging my goal in doing this is to better understand God's heart. If we do that, man, I guarantee you it'll transform you. That's why at BCC we say we start with Scripture. Scripture is our starting point. We start there because that's the foundation. And starting with Scripture helps us to see clearly who God is. Because if we try to make God in our own image, we're making an idol. And we're trying to take our desires and what we want God to do and how we think God should operate. We'll go and create that version of God for us, but it doesn't look at all like him because his word is what anchors and grounds who he is. Not my feelings and not my experiences. Too many people lead the way with their perception of God by what they have felt or what they have experienced or simply what they want. And they think, I want to make God this way because I think God should be, act like this. Because I define love this way or I define truth this way. And they go and pursue their own idea of God. And then they open up the Bible and they do something called proof texting. Which they look for a scripture to back up their belief. We shouldn't go to scripture to back up our belief. We should have our beliefs defined from scripture. You see, we start with Scripture. We don't go the opposite way to go find out how Scripture can support me. No, I want Scripture to shape the lens in which I view my life and the world and eternity and my need and sin and salvation. Amen? And I start there. When I start there, it all matters about where you start. All of the different debates that are happening in the world that, that just seem to be getting so much attention about uh, the way people view truth and the way people view God and the way people view love and the way people view sin. All these different things. The only difference, church, is where you start. That's the difference. Because if you start with Scripture, if you start with Scripture and you allow Scripture to define how you think, how you view things, how you live. It is you learning the heart of God and you aligning your heart and your thinking to the heart of God. This is called renewing the mind. The Apostle Paul talked about this in the book of Romans where he talked about us being transformed by renewing our minds in Romans 12 and 2. This is the idea of us learning about God, not just for the purpose of gaining knowledge, but for the purpose of it producing fruit in our lives. So here's our big idea for the day. We gain confidence in who we are when we know who he is. I'm going to say that again. We gain confidence in who we are when we know who he is. You see, the idea of us knowing how God has made us, how he has created us, how he has loved us, how he has forgiven us, it shapes and transforms my identity. Too often, people go to the Bible to look for themselves, and I want to tell you, Christian, stop looking for yourself in the Bible and start looking for God. Because if you go to the Scripture and you look for God, he will show you who you are. 
and he will show you how he's made you and you will begin to see how God sees you, which is more important than how anyone else in this world sees you. And so I don't want to be defined by anything else other than how God sees me. And so I want to go to scripture to look for God. And when I do that, when I start there, when my pursuit is the heart of God, it shapes, it transforms the way that I see myself. It transforms because, man, before I knew the heart of God and before I was transformed by abiding in that heart, man, I, I, I was just all about me, all about what I wanted all about my priority, all about my agenda. And now because I'm abiding, there's different fruit that's coming out of my life. And so because we start with scripture and because scripture is the foundation to all of our thoughts and experiences about God, I want us to be anchored in how to properly handle scripture. And so I want to teach us something today uh, that I believe is going to be very practical in nature and that's going to help us to grow in understanding who he is if we start with scripture. There is a seminarian term that is called exegesis that we're going to learn today. And I didn't say extra Jesus because some of you thought, oh, it's like extra pepperoni and it's extra Jesus. I've got Jesus. Now I get extra Jesus. Like I had big Jesus. Now I'm going to big it up with Jesus and I've got a bigger Jesus. And no, no, it's still the same Jesus, all right? So I'm not saying extra Jesus, it's exegesis. And what exegesis is just a fancy way of saying proper, uh, proper biblical interpretation. There were, but before we talk about how to do this properly, I want to warn you about two other ways people interpret scripture. And you're going to pick up on this because you've probably seen this happen as you've listened to other people preach, teach, or you've read books or things like that. And I want to warn you of these things so you'll be able to discern when those things come up and know what is of God and what isn't. There's a term that's called eisegesis, which is a way people use to interpret the Bible, and it does exactly what it implies. It isolates scripture, and it basically removes the context in order to take that one scripture and basically make it say whatever I want it to say. And the scripture then begins to serve my purpose or my idea or my ideal. And a lot of times we, we misunderstand the purpose of the scripture. I think one of the scriptures that we see uh, this happen a lot is 1 Corinthians 13. Um, also Philippians 4 and 13 as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's known as the love chapter, right? And we talk about that, a lot of people. And, and it's not used in, in a necessarily egregious way most times, but the purpose. We have to anchor the text in the purpose. And the purpose of 1 Corinthians 13 is basically telling the church in Corinth by the hand of the Apostle Paul writing to them saying, listen guys, um, I don't care how spiritual you think you are or what spiritual gifts you may think you have. If you speak in tongues, if you uh, are able to uh, prophesy or if you're able to uh, give words of knowledge or words of wisdom, if you don't have love, you're just making a bunch of noise because here's the heart of God and here's what you should actually be anchored in, not trying to out-spiritualize one another. And that's really the heart of what's happening because if you read the context, you'll see chapters 12 and chapters 14 kind of sandwich this idea of chapter 13. Paul didn't like have some sort of uh, a schizophrenic moment where he just changes and deviates from talking about the gifts of the spirit. Now he's talking about something else and he wants to talk about love for a little bit. And then he goes back in 14 to start talking about gifts of the spirit. This is one letter. Don't you hate being misrepresented? 
Man, I hate being misrepresented. I hate when people take things I say out of context. And it's great when we can say, hey, we actually do have the context. We can actually look at the heart of what's being said so that way someone doesn't misrepresent us. What if someone found a love letter from you to, uh, to your sweetheart, right? What if they found a love letter and they just took one sentence out of that love letter and they took it and said it in a way that you didn't mean it? You would be like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. You've got to read the whole letter, right? Oh, you took that out of context. How often do we do this with Holy Scripture? Man, that's what eisegesis does. It uses Scripture to serve our purposes. And we proof text by coming to Scripture with our idea and going, okay, how can I prove that I'm right? Oh, I found this one Scripture. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe that Scripture does mean that, but maybe it doesn't. Before I run with that, I have to read what's before it, what's after it. This is part of the job of of being a good uh, steward and a, a, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I do this when I go to preach because, man, I'll tell you guys, no joke, sometimes I'll be wanting to preach like on a certain topic or something, and I'll find this scripture, and I'll be like, oh, that's a great scripture. Oh, that's going to work out really well. And then I'll read the context, and I'll go, nope, can't use that to say that. <laughs> it would make a great point, though. Oh, man, that's not what that text means. And I can't use that in that way, even if it feels good, even if it could be true about God somewhere else. The better thing to do would be to use the scripture where it actually is properly saying that idea rather than making a scripture that's not communicating that idea, try to force that square peg in that round hole just because it may be true somewhere else. No, no, no. We have to be responsible handling the word of truth. Amen. There's another version of interpretation called narcissus, and it implies exactly what it sounds like. It is narcissistic in nature because it replaces the word you with my name. And I go and I want to make myself, especially if it's when it's the hero of the story. You know, I mean, like, we, we, we love stories about us getting to be the hero, and I think probably one of the most famous abuses of this is probably in the story of David, where we want to be David. And you've heard a sermon or a story where Goliath is your problem or your boss at your job or your, you know, whatever it may be. You know, I mean, there's this Goliath in my way and I'm David and I have to go take the, the, the stones and it's my faith or the word of God. And I throw them at that and it overcomes. And, and we love telling stories that way in, in an allegorical form. And that in and of itself is and abuse and misuse of scripture. Because if you want to use scripture allegorically in that sense, um, you're not David. You want to know who we are in that story? We're the scared Israelites over in the corner who couldn't do anything about that big mountain that was in our way. Jesus is David. He's the victor. He's the overcomer. Goliath is our sin. So if you want to use it properly, that's the story. We're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And so this isn't some pick-me-up type thing where that's a misuse of Scripture because Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the greater one. Amen. He's the greater Elijah. He's the greater Elisha. It's not us. It's him. He gets the glory. He's the greater one. The Bible is not about me. It's rather about God. And when I learn that and when I can rest in that, boy, it takes the pressure off of me. And I go, God sure is big and I sure can trust him. And when I learn about God, it actually encourages me more than me trying to figure all this out on my own. So that's how narcissus works and eisegesis. So here's how to do proper exegesis, all right? The proper way to do this is, number one, 
what is the plain meaning of the text? What is the literal meaning of the text? Because often the plain meaning of the text is the actual meaning. So go and read what's before it, read what's after it, and think about what is the actual plain meaning of the text. Too often we get um, allegorical or mystical in a lot of our interpretations, and sometimes there's symbolism and things like that in prophetic books, but most of the time we can see what is the plain meaning of the text. The second question we need to ask ourselves, and this is an important one, what did this text most likely mean to the original hearers or readers of their day? Think about that, because it's one Holy Spirit, right? There's not a different Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago than there is today, right? And so if the Holy Spirit's the one inspiring the author, the only inspired person in Scripture was the original author who wrote this, not the commentary. Uh-oh. Matthew, Henry, Calvin, all those people, they're not inspired. They, so you can't put commentary on par with Scripture because commentaries can be wrong. And that's Okay. It's okay, Christian, can I tell you, it's okay if you disagree with the commentary. Actually, you should at some point in your life disagree with the commentary. That's okay, because commentary and scriptures are not on par with one another. Scripture is the word of God, amen? The commentaries are just given to help us understand. They're just helping us to maybe know some things about that, the, the time or the period or, or the historical nature of things that maybe we didn't know before. So ask yourself, what did this most likely mean to the original hearers and readers of their day? Because the Holy Spirit's not changing the meaning of it throughout the centuries because if it, means, if it can mean anything, then it means nothing, right? If it can mean anything, and if we can spiritualize anything and slap the Holy Spirit on it and say, God said, that's dangerous, because I could tell you folks, Mary had a little lamb. Mm. Its fleece was white as snow. Ooh, somebody's filling the Lord up in this place. <laughs> and everywhere that Mary went, ooh, let me tell you, the lamb was sure to go. Oof, man, let me tell you about that lamb. And people can go, oh, that sounds spiritual. We can make anything sound spiritual and we can take it and place it and attach it to other things. And folks, can I tell you, Mary had a little lamb is not on par with scripture. Amen to that. that. (laughs) And we need to understand this because this is so important. What did it mean to the original hearers and readers of their day? Now, remember a lot of people during that time uh, were illiterate. And so you didn't have books and things in your home. You didn't have like a shelf for all your scrolls at home. Um, You would actually go to the temple to hear the scriptures read. And so when those scrolls would be opened up, people who could read would read those things to you. So all these things were heard a lot. They were also read, but they were primarily heard. So ask yourself, the first people to hear this word, what would this have meant to them? And anchor your interpretation in that intent. Try to discern that when you're reading. The third thing is what does this text teach me about the heart of God? Remember, our goal in all of our learning is to better understand God's heart because we're abiding in him, right? And so if we're doing this, then abiding in him is something that I have to to make sure that I'm producing fruit, okay? How does this show me the heart of God? And this will help you, especially in those parts of scripture that may be a little confusing or maybe a little culturally strange. 
Don't try to necessarily figure out all the cultural nuances. Sometimes we're just really far removed away from certain biblical practices or, or cultural practices of their day, and we don't fully understand all of that, and that's okay. That, there must still be some relevancy to it, otherwise God wouldn't have put it in there. And so if I ask myself, what, why did God put that in there? It was to show us his heart. So how does what God did or what God said or how the people responded, how did it show me God's heart? And then fourth, lastly, what does this mean to me and what am I supposed to do with it? So before I can answer the question, a lot of people just go to the scripture and go, what am I supposed to do, right? <laughs> what does this mean to me? Whoa, 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 whoa. Start with asking yourself, what does, this, what does this mean and what did it mean to those people of their day? And how would they have seen the heart of God in this? And how can I see the heart of God in this? And now I need to ask myself, what do I need to do? What's God requiring me to do? Remember that sentences only have meaning in paragraphs. And paragraphs only have meaning in literary units. That means that let's look at the, 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 the subject matter that's being discussed here. And let's give ourselves uh, a, a lot more leeway here to study rather than to just assume and cherry pick and go off and run with different interpretations. This will help you discern also false doctrine because there are many voices out there in the world today, amen? I mean, today in the world, anybody can have their own blog, YouTube channel, they can have their own platform, and anybody can say anything. And if you want to go hear somebody tell you something that feels good and agrees with you, you probably don't have to go very far because Google will help you find it, Right? All you have to do is just Google something. Next thing you know, you're finding somebody who agrees with your doctrine that may not be right. You may agree with your view of God that may not be right. So I need to, instead of just finding someone to agree with me, I need to say, what does Scripture say? And I need to ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide me because Scripture says the Spirit of God will guide me into all truth. And so if that's the case, when I open up the Word, I, say, I need to say, Spirit of God, guide me today. And I do this as a pastor. I say, because... I know I'm going to be held accountable for what I teach and what I share. And I sure don't want to be teaching something that's false or in error. So Lord, help me to be anchored in that. Help me to know what's right. And there have been times, church, where I can tell you I got excited about a scripture and what I thought it meant. And then I did a little bit of looking. I was like, well, I can't teach that that way. Although that principle may be true, I want to teach it the way that God wants it to be taught. I think one of the biggest scriptures that this happens with is uh, Philippians 4.13, right? We see this a lot. Philippians 4.13, what does it say? It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Woo, that is brandable. That is marketable right there, right? But if I pull that out of context and I just say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, well, what's all things? I mean, what's all things? I mean, can I jump up on this building and go take off and fly like Superman? I will have a rude awakening when I hit the ground. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that, you know, some people take that all things. Well, every time I'm supposed to pray for somebody, they're always supposed to get healed and I can do all things. And through Christ who strengthens me, well, what happens when someone doesn't get healed and you pray? Oh, there goes your, 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 your doctrine, your theology. You're building off of this one Scripture that you're pulling, you're doing eisegesis, you're taking this out of context and you're not looking at it. So let's look at the whole context. Let me help you here, all right? Philippians 4.13. To give you the context of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing this from prison and he's writing to this church and he's thanking them for this gift and then they've made this promise of, of this other gift 
And he's letting them know, hey, God's taking care of my needs even while I'm in prison, but thank you guys for your gift. And he's writing this letter to them to encourage the church while he's in prison and talking to them about this gift, whether it was food or, or money or, or resources or maybe a combination of all of it, we don't know. But whatever it was, it was a gift that the church put together um, to make sure that Paul was taken care of. And then this is what this says. Remember, Paul writing from prison. Let's back up to verse 10, all right? Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every circumstance and in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, when I read it that way, that anchors the text in something different. It doesn't mean I can just go do anything, does it? It's not just to encourage me to score more points in the basketball game, right? It's not saying I can ace this math test, right, if I'm in, in school, or I can, you know, get this job interview because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, it's saying whether things are going my way or whether they're not, I can endure those things and be content because Christ gives me the strength and any circumstance that comes my way, I can endure. So I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, and that anchors the meaning of the text. So therefore, when I hear it used otherwise, I go, wait a minute, wait a minute before I get excited and want to run with something, I stay anchored in that meaning. And then I ask myself, well, then what does that mean for me today? Now that I understand most likely what it meant to them and what it meant to Paul and what it meant to the Philippians when they read this. We want to know God for who he is, not for who we want him to be. Amen? So many people just want to chase after God in their image and the way they want him to be. And church, can I tell you, God has already told us who he is. He's told us in his word. And I want our church to be people who can rightly divide and discern the truth of God's word because we gain confidence in who we are when we know who he is. And I want us to be people who know the God of the Bible, not the God that we want to get to serve our ideas. No, I want, Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I want your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven in my life. Amen? Amen. But for me to be able to say that confidently, I've got to know who he is. And I've got to chase after his heart. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to gain confidence this week together as a church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put together an, an email every single day that's going to go out to you. If you want to sign up for this, you need to sign up for it. Um, we're going to have a graphic up on the screen that will help you do this. And you can email us as well and we'll help get you signed up. But starting on Monday morning, we are going to send out um, emails to help our church to grow in this this week by I want our whole church to go verse by verse through the book of Philippians. It's a, it's a very short letter. And so just like we read in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, to understand the context, I want to give us some tools, some steps, some things to do that I promise won't take you more than 10, 15 minutes at most, but you could spend hours with it if you would like to as well. So this is something that I believe that if we can grow in as a church, something that we can do together, I believe that it will help us to grow in our understanding of who he is because we gain confidence in who we are 
uh, when we know who he is. Um, and I want us to get this church. I want us to understand this. So I want you to sign up for um, these emails. Guys, do we have that graphic? Was it behind me? I looked behind me. I didn't see it. I see you guys shaking your head no. If you guys in the back, if you guys could pull that up and just leave that up for the church, there it is. Um, I want to make sure you get this. So we've got a little QR code or whatever. You can scan that. And uh, we're going to go through the book of Philippians together, church. And I want to see us do this and grow in Christ-likeness and grow in fruitfulness. Amen. And I want us to grow in rightly handling the word of truth because I want to give you the confidence. I want to equip you. This is my role as a pastor, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I want to equip you to rightly handle the word of truth, to rightly be able to discern. Because I just got through a whole series saying, go out and disciple, go out and mentor, right? And now I'm wanting you to walk through the how-tos with somebody. So I hope that you've been inspired to go mentor someone and invest in someone or be mentored by someone. And now I want you to know how to do it. And it starts with you spending time with God. It starts with you spending time in the word. Amen. And I want us to grow in this. So let's do this together and go through Philippians this week. Uh, the email is going to go out around 5.30 every morning. And uh, some of you, you're like, oh, I've already done all my chores by then. And, you know, I've already. And some of you are like 5.30. Like, I don't even know what that looks like. So no matter which end of the spectrum that you're on with the 5.30 thing, just know that around 5.30, that email is going to go out every day this week, Monday through Friday, okay? but you got to sign up for it to be a part of that. Um, we can put that on social media too, right, Michelle, with them being able to sign up. So we'll have it on social media. You can get it here or just email us as well, and we'll make sure to get that out to you every day. Let's pray because I believe God's going to use this to help us grow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity just to be able to learn about how to rightly handle your word. Help us, God, to rightly handle the word of truth. Help us, God, to use that muscle of discernment to be able to share your word with your people. Help us to grow, God, so that we can live fruitful lives as we abide in you, as we spend time with you, as we grow in knowing your heart more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in online. Our in-person service times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. To learn more about BCC, visit us at bettendorfcc.com. Have a great day.